There are some generation gaps you just can't predict, and not long ago, I found myself struggling to explain to my kids how the Pepsi taste test used to work. If you're a millennial or Gen Z listener, I may have to explain it to you too. So when I was younger, there was a campaign that basically put the world's two top most popular soft drinks against each other. In commercials and in real life events, Pepsi would have samples of its own drink in a little white cup next to a sample of Coca-Cola, but neither of the cups would be labeled. You would swallow a bit of both drinks and then say which one you liked better. Given that this was run by Pepsi, of course, the answer you saw on TV or elsewhere was never Coke. I can't be bothered to fact check this, but a friend once told me that the odds were stacked in Pepsi's favor because it has a slightly sweeter taste and human nature is to go for more sugar. The whole concept now sounds kind of weird, in part because the storytelling techniques companies use in their content marketing strategies have led many of us to evaluate a brand based on more than simply the qualities of its products and services. We might think about how they become a part of our lifestyle, for example, or what they do in the wider community. We might think about whether or not they take a stand on important issues, or whether they're running their business in a way that demonstrates positive values towards their employees and the environment. You could argue this is even more important for soft drink companies. Drinking them isn't really good for you, as we all know, so how can you feel good about drinking them? While Pepsi focused on a taste test, Coke has been continuing to test its approach to storytelling through a magazine-like brand that it has customized all over the world. It's time to enjoy, make it real, and taste the feeling you get by reading The Coca-Cola Journey on the Owned Media Observer. The Owned Media Observer is an exercise in applying media criticism to the branded content that takes an editorial approach to storytelling. This is a podcast for content marketers who want to do better work, for media professionals who want to size up their competition, and for audiences of all kinds who want to better understand all the new sources of information popping up everywhere around them. When I'm not making this podcast, I work as a journalist covering business and technology and as a content marketing consultant, helping some of the world's biggest brands and smallest startups influence the strategic thinking of their most valuable customers. You can find out more about me and maybe even work with me by visiting my website at shaneshick.com. Long before companies published their own magazines and other branded content that was aimed at their customers, there was a different kind of owned media. These were the magazines and newsletters that companies produced solely for their own employees. Usually, they were something you'd see in really large organizations where the workforce was highly distributed and there weren't yet intranets and other tools to facilitate internal communication. In my career as a journalist, I remember a few occasions where a story I'd written about somebody was reprinted in a company's employee magazine, or where the company's employee magazine wrote a story that talked about the fact that I'd written a story about someone on their team. I'm not sure how many of these publications are still around, but the Coca-Cola company is a good example of a firm that ran one for years. 
Launched in 1987, Journey was a quarterly print publication that Coke ran until 1997. The name wasn't as random as you might think. It came from an old proverb that has since become almost hackneyed from overuse, which is, success is not a destination, but a journey. The first issue of the employee-focused internal version of Journey included a quote from Roberto Guzziata, who was then Coke's chairman and CEO. And he wrote, The magazine's purpose is to chronicle the journey on which we, and the great company for which we work, have embarked. As content shifted to online channels and as social media created new ways of interacting with customers, Coca-Cola decided its journey needed to be a bit more public. The first attempt was more of a conventional public relations kind of exercise. There was a blog called Unbottled, where Coca-Cola gave a behind-the-scenes look at how it created marketing campaigns and some of the firm's biggest announcements. In an interview with PR Week, Coca-Cola's then-director of digital communications and social media said, quote, We have the biggest Facebook brand page, we have YouTube channels, and we have Twitter accounts for our top brands. But what we were really missing was that canvas where we could tell engaging Coca-Cola stories. End quote. Those stories, however, were largely intended to inspire stories to be covered by traditional reporters and editors. This was in the early 2010s, when a lot of companies were wondering if they should be doing something other than spitting out the usual press releases in order to get picked up by major newspapers and magazines. In November of 2012, however, the Coca-Cola company decided to dive much deeper into what was then called brand journalism. It took its entire corporate website, which looked pretty much like most corporate websites, and tried to turn the whole thing into more of a magazine, which it christened Coca-Cola Journey. An article that was simply bylined as coming from Journey staff talks about what Coca-Cola Journey was trying to do and how it would do it. Quote, Coca-Cola Journey makes, and sometimes breaks, Coca-Cola news, bringing to life the stories bubbling just beneath the surface of our brands and business. We amplify and add an editorial voice to our marketing campaigns and sponsorship assets. We champion our culture humanize our company, and find fresh ways to tell our sustainability and innovation stories. We celebrate our past, present, and future, and we capitalize on pop culture moments and real-time opportunities. This whole thing is unusual for a couple of reasons. First, most of the own media I've seen other brands create, and which I've talked about on this podcast, have been positioned as an adjunct or somewhat removed from the main content the company produces about its products and services. You don't see a lot of companies change their entire site into a digital magazine. Secondly, because this was Coca-Cola, one of the most global and recognizable brands in human history, the company did not assume readers around the world would all want to read the same things. This meant Coca-Cola Journey became less like a particular content destination, but a true owned media network. Within three years after the initial launch, there were more than 20 different versions of the site that were aimed at audiences in more than 30 countries. The UK, the Ukraine, Morocco, India, Pakistan, Russia. They all had, and in some cases still have, as the time of this episode was recorded, their own Coca-Cola journey, 
produced by local editors and writers within the company's communications team and published in 14 languages. The range of stories on Coca-Cola Journey was similarly diverse. They could include everything from the launch of a new flavor or bottle design or health and wellness tips that made no direct mention of the brand. In an interview with the digital agency Contently, a Coca-Cola Journey writer and editor named Jay Moy said the U.S. version of the publication ran a mind-blowing 12,000 pieces of content within its first year. Two or three stories were being published a day by a staff of seven and various freelance writers. By 2014, Coca-Cola Journey was averaging 1.1 million visitors a month, according to Moy. And the editorial voice was intended to reflect that of the company, a voice consumers were apparently eager to listen to. Quote, We thought people would be looking more at the non-branded stuff, Moy told contently. We were surprised that pretty much everything we publish about our advertising or our history does incredibly well. We doubled down on Coke-focused content, end quote. By 2015, however, Coke seemed to be hitting a plateau, or at least some snags with its own media strategy. A story on DigiDay reported on a decline in organic traffic to Coca-Cola Journey and interviewed Coke executives who said they would be increasing the amount they paid to promote stories on social media channels like Facebook. What was fascinating to me, though, and what might be to most, most helpful to other brands, was the way Coke was measuring its success. Rather than focusing just on clicks and visits, it created its own formula called EOI, or Expressions of Interest. This included a mixture of things like bounce rates and time spent, sharing, commenting, and more. Some aspects of EOI, though, sounded more intangible and qualitative. As one exec told DigiDay, if we don't change the conversation or inform readers, we're not doing our job. Seeing what kind of job had been done was going to be somewhat challenging, given that I could only look at so many versions of Coca-Cola Journey. It turned out to be quite the trip. For obvious reasons, I first looked for the Coca-Cola Journey on its global site, but that's not what I found. Instead, CocaColaCompany.com has no mention of the word journey, and the emphasis is decidedly visual and mission-driven. There are essentially a series of large images which take up the full width of the screen, like one featuring people wearing red and white clothes at some kind of sports rally. There isn't a story, but there are the words, we are here to refresh the world and make a difference, followed by tiles that say things like, crafting brands and choices people love, and creating a more sustainable business. At first glance, it feels like the Coca-Cola journey has ended right back where it began, with a perfectly functional corporate website that leaves storytelling behind. This was when I started to explore some of the more regional sites. Visit the Coca-Cola journey in Pakistan, for example, and you see a design that's more akin to that of a major news outlet like Time Magazine or CNN. There are still a lot of images, but they're in a slider that allows you to move from one top story to the next. These include stories like Coca-Cola's delegation calls on Prime Minister Imran Khan, reaffirms investment plan, and Coca-Cola and WWF collaborate with informal sector for plastic waste reduction. 
A section called Just Poured features profiles of people like Zadaf Sarar, who handles local communications across the Coke portfolio of brands. She looks young, smiling at the camera, and holding up a heart with a silhouette of a Coke bottle in the center of it. Scroll down a bit more, and you'll see slightly older stories, like Coke's participation in a climate change conclave, and videos showcasing social media campaigns like hashtag love not like. In New Zealand, the Coca-Cola journey is similar in terms of overall design, but there's something a little lighter, more colorful and playful about the stories published there. An area called What's for Dinner takes you to a database of food recipes like oatmeal raisin muffins sweetened with stevia, and the kind of content that would prepare you for a good trivia challenge, like the history of Fanta. There's also more of an attempt at curating, like a link to a Washington Post story that Coke has given the headline, What if plastic never became waste? This is placed not far from stories that go deep into the details around Coke's packaging, its efforts towards greater transparency, and how it is trying to help Kiwis consume less sugar. Next, I traveled to the UK, where the Coca-Cola journey shared the story of its ongoing partnership with Street Games, which helps make sports more widely available to disadvantaged youth. The sustainability theme continued with a story about how to tackle litter in the UK's waterways, and more fun-oriented stories like a pop-up arcade Coke sponsored to celebrate the hit Netflix series, Stranger Things. One of the most common elements across all these sites was a treatment of Coke as a brand with such die-hard fans that they would want to know as much about it as they could. There were backgrounders on the evolution of the Coke logo, timelines about its taglines, and lots about the bottles in which Coke is consumed. If you've ever been to the Coca-Cola store in Las Vegas, the Coca-Cola journey is like the magazine version of that. When I went looking for human interest stories, one of the best that popped up was located on the Coca-Cola journey's Indian edition. It's not about bottles. It's not about waste. It's about agriculture. In the last few years, farmer M. Chenaredi has found the going to be a little tough at his farms. The cash crops that he had regularly planted at his farm in Chittur in Andhra Pradesh had been faced with a shortage of water. There was nothing wrong in the drill that he had followed while planting the sugarcane in his fields, but he didn't realize the severity of the problem being caused due to the shortage of water. Sugarcane has always been known to be a water-intensive crop, and, with every passing year, Chenoretti was finding it increasingly difficult to manage the water requirements for the plants. The only saving grace for him was that his crop of groundnuts was not facing as much of a problem. As he scratched his head to find a solution to the vexing problem, help almost seemed to walk his way. A person from Jane Irrigation, a partner of Coca-Cola for the Mango Unati program, was visiting the area. He was telling farmers about a new plantation technique that could have more trees and more fruit in the same land that they owned. It sounded too good to be true. So, Chenoretti decided to attend a couple of mobile classes on the Unati bus that was also visiting the area. Inside the bus that had been converted into a classroom, farmers were told in great detail about the UHDP program. What had their jaw drop was the results that had been achieved in the fields, not just in the labs. Quote, the classroom really helped to convince me 
to switch the planting of Unadi mango trees, Chenereddy said on the phone, speaking in his native language, Telugu. Soon, it was time for him to visit Umamflat, a local fruit processing plant set up by Jane Irrigation. Having understood the kind of mangoes that were needed to feed the plant which had produced the mango pulp, Chenereddy was even more sure of what he wanted to do. The first mango trees under the UHDP program were planted on December 25th, 2013. He planted 1,360 mango trees in the two acres, but some of them could not survive due to the shortage of water. Despite that, Chenereddy has not looked back. His fields now grow both Todipuri and Alfonso mangoes, both of which are used to make pulp that goes into the making of maza, the mango beverage that is loved by most of India. The annual mango output from Chenereddy's mango orchards is about 15 tons every year, and that is very good income for the family. Two of his three children, both sons, work in Bengaluru, and the income from the mango orchards takes good care of the family. Chenereddy does not practice the flood irrigation for his mango orchards and has infested in drip irrigation. It's helped him address the challenge faced by the shortage of water. Last year, prices of the mangoes had fallen. But during the summer of 2019, the output has been good and the prices have been stable. Quote, our income has been better this year compared to what we earned last year, a contented Chenereddy said. A healthy output of the king of fruits, as the Indian palate knows, was never going to let him down. I probably should have disclosed at the outset that I am a huge Diet Coke drinker. I often have two cans a day, even though I know I shouldn't. I don't even really think about it. And despite the time I spent on the Coca-Cola journey, I can't honestly say I'll think a lot about it the next time I pop open a can. There's no real way for me to prove this, but I suspect that the surge of interest that they saw in the more Coke-oriented stories a few years ago was partly curiosity about what the brand would say about itself. That would also explain why the traffic started to drop off a little later. After a while, you can go through the Coca-Cola journey and it's just so much Coke. There's only so much you can consume. There's also an element of thou dost protest too much when a soft drink company publishes article after article after article about how focused it is on sustainability, even though its cans continue to fill recycling bins, or articles about reducing sugar when we all know why we reach for its products. It's not that the stories on the Coca-Cola journey aren't true necessarily, but there's such a quantity of them that it begins to feel less like a true storytelling approach with the interests of its audience in mind, and more like the one thing owned media should never be, propaganda. It's really hard for many brands to know how much to talk about themselves and how much to talk about the world. Coke has obviously made its choice, and if it decides to hold true to that, I think you'll see more of its regional sites come to look like its global one. This may not be a brand that needs an audience looking at a magazine. For other companies, even if they don't develop something at quite the scale of the Coca-Cola journey, the lesson here is to continue to tell stories, to test and learn. In other words, to keep moving. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe on whatever service you use to get the best podcasts. I'm always open to feedback as well as suggestions for other examples of owned media I should critique. Send your ideas or comments my way via email at schickmedia at gmail.com or on social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. 
This podcast is recorded in beautiful Toronto, Canada, and is only possible thanks to all the brands that pay me to help them create content that serves the needs of their communities. This has been Shane Schick for the Owned Media Observer. Thanks for listening.